This is SolveCast and I'm Dana Williams. I discuss real estate related issues and SolveCast is a platform that presents the news and solutions. Today, Richard Rothstein is joining me. He is a distinguished fellow of the Economic Policy Institute and a senior fellow emeritus at the Thurgood Marshall Institute of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. He's also the author of the book and our subject today, Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. The New York Times said in their review of the book that it demolishes the notion that government played a minor role with segregating our country since the 19th century. They also said that you made a slam dunk case Mr. Rothstein, for how deeply racism is embedded in housing. You deal with these two very important issues in housing and for our nation. One, how our country is segregated in most cities, towns, and suburbs. And two, how African Americans have been systematically roadblocked over and over with buying homes. Today, 42% of Blacks own homes versus 73% of whites. We'll get to that shortly. But first, I want to ask you, why do you believe racial integration in our communities is so important? Well, our racial segregation underlies the most serious social problems that we face in this country. For example, uh, we have uh, an enormous achievement gap in schools between black and white children. Black children achieve at much lower levels than white children do. That's almost entirely attributable to the fact that we concentrate the most disadvantaged, lower-income African-American children in single schools because those schools are located in segregated neighborhoods. Uh, If you have a school where every child is coming to school with some kind of social economic challenge, Uh, it's impossible for that school to achieve at the same level. It's a school where children come to school well-rested and in good health and uh, well-nourished in economically secure homes. I can give you one quick example. African-American children in urban areas have asthma at much greater rate than white children in suburban areas. Uh, African-American children have asthma at a higher rate uh, because uh, they live in more polluted neighborhoods. Uh, more trucks driving by their homes, more dilapidated buildings, uh, more vermin in the environment. And if a child has asthma, that child is more likely than a child who doesn't, not in every case, but more likely than a child who doesn't, to come to school drowsy the next day because the child has been up at night wheezing. And if you have two groups of children who are identical in every respect, same racial breakdown, same social economic background, same family structure, but one group has a higher rate of asthma than the other, that group's going to have lower average achievement by a small amount. And then you begin to add up all of the other social and economic challenges that children face. Lead poisoning, for example, much more prevalent in low-income neighborhoods where the buildings are older, where the pipes are older, where the paint is peeling. Lead poisoning has a measurable impact on IQ. So you add up all of these social and economic conditions that are challenging Black children in urban, segregated neighborhoods asthma, lead poisoning, homelessness, economic insecurity, and you pretty much explain the achievement gap in schools. Same thing is true of health disparities. African-Americans, as you know, know, have shorter life expectancies, greater rates of cardiovascular disease because they live in more polluted neighborhoods, uh, more dangerous neighborhoods, less access to grocery stores, they're selling fresh food. It 
predicts the uh, enormous uh, uh, mass incarceration of young African-American men and police abuse of young African-American men that we spent so much time demonstrating about a year and a half ago. I'm not suggesting that police would never abuse young men, uh, African-American men, but if you have a situation where you're concentrating the most disadvantaged young men in single neighborhoods where they have no access to good jobs, no access to the transportation to get to those jobs, uh, no access to schools, they aren't overwhelmed with the social and economic problems of their students. It's inevitable that the police are going to engage in confrontations with them and use tactics they would never dare use in, in other neighborhoods where you don't have that kind of concentration of hopelessness and disadvantage. And I think that the segregation, let me just say this one more thing. The mm -hmm. segregation that we have imposed on this country is responsible for something that I think is very dangerous and frightening. I, I imagine most of your listeners do as well. And that's the enormous political polarization that we have in this country, which largely tracks racial lines. It's not entirely racial, but it largely tracks racial lines. Haven't we ever expect to develop the common national identity that we need to preserve this democracy? If so many African-Americans and whites live so far from each other that we have no ability to empathize with each other, no ability to understand each, each other's life experiences. So the segregation that we created is the most serious underlying cause of our most uh, serious and dangerous uh, social and economic problems and political problems we have today. You detail so many ways that we've been kept segregated by the government and corporations and institutions. Um, and as you're referring to now, the zoning that has affected um, Black American communities versus white communities. So can you give us an example of how our government or an institution has kept us segregated? Well, perhaps the most powerful example is a program that the Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration implemented in the World War II, post-World War II period, when they suburbanized the country. We weren't a suburban country at that time. Uh, the Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration embarked on a program to suburbanize the entire white working class and lower middle class population into single family homes and suburbs and exclude African-Americans from those suburbs. It was just an explicit racial policy. Uh, perhaps the most uh, famous example of this is Levittown, east of New York City, but there every metropolitan area in the country has these FHA and VA subsidized uh, suburbs. California, places like Lakewood and uh, Panorama City, uh, uh, in Northern California, places uh, like Westlake, throughout the country, these suburbs were created by the federal government on a whites-only basis. Uh, to take Levittown as an example, uh, Levitt, the builder, could never have developed this project on his own. No bank would be crazy enough to lend him the money to build 17,000 homes in one place. Or Westlake in California, 15,000 homes. No bank was going to lend somebody money to do that. They had no buyers. It was a crazy idea. Nobody thought people would want to live in the suburbs. The only way that William Levitt could get the funds to build this project was by going to the Federal Housing Administration, making a commitment that he would never sell a home to an African-American. The Federal Housing Administration, the Veterans Administration, even required that he place a clause in the deed of every home prohibiting resale to African-Americans or rental to African-Americans. This was not the action of rogue bureaucrats in the FHA or VA. This was a written federal policy 
the uh, federal manual that was distributed to appraisers all over the country who evaluated the applications of builders to create these suburbs uh, said explicitly you couldn't um, recommend for a federal bank guarantee a loan to a builder who is going to uh, include African-Americans in this project. The manual went so far as to say that you couldn't even uh, recommend for a federal bank guarantee a loan to a developer of an all-white project. If he, was going to lo- if he was going to locate that project near where African-Americans were living, because the words of the manual, uh, that would run the risk of infiltration by inharmonious racial groups. In mm-hmm. my book, The Color of Life, a photograph of a six-foot-high, half-mile-long concrete wall the developer in the Detroit area was required by the FHA to construct to separate his all-white project from nearby African-American neighborhoods as a condition of getting a federal bank guarantee. Well, those homes were inexpensive at the time. Uh, they, uh, Levittown homes sold for about, in today's money, about $100,000. They don't sell for $100,000 anymore. And these uh, sub- subdivision suburbs throughout the country, homes don't sell for $100,000. They now sell for $300,000, $400,000, $500,000 in some places, a million dollars or more. The white working class families, middle class families who bought homes in those uh, federally subsidized subdivisions gained over the next couple of generations wealth from the appreciation of the value of their homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they use that to send their children to college. They use it to um, take care of medical emergency, perhaps, or uh, uh, temporary unemployment. They used it for their own retirements. And they used it to bequeath wealth to their children and grandchildren, who then had down payments for their own homes. African-Americans were prohibited from participating in this program. The result is that today, while African-American incomes are about 60%, 60% on average family incomes of white family incomes, African-American wealth is only 5% of white wealth. And that enormous disparity between a 60% income ratio and a 5% wealth ratio is almost entirely attributable to unconstitutional federal housing policy practiced in the mid-20th century by the federal government. That's one example. Yes, I know. And there are many. Um, But you also detail the enormous amount of hurdles um, making home ownership difficult for African-Americans just with lending and and if they were able to get the access to home ownership. So can you give a, an, an example of that? I know you mentioned redlining um, um, and all the and blockbusting, the deeds with the racial covenants. So could you explain just one of these in more detail? Well, I've already referred to the racial covenants, the deeds yes. that the FHA and VA required. Um, Levitt and all these other builders, many of these other builders have put in the deeds. Well, I'll give that, that, that program that I just described excluded African-Americans from the suburbs. Those who remained in cities were also unable to get federally uh, guaranteed loans of mortgages, FHA mortgages or VA mortgages, because their neighborhoods were, the term is redlined. The uh, Federal Housing Administration, the Veterans Administration, considered the neighborhoods in which they lived to be too risky uh, to make uh, loans. And so uh, instead, speculators um, and realtors came into those neighborhoods and uh, sold homes to African-American families on contract, which really wasn't selling them at all. It was a uh, like an installment plan. Uh, they could... Uh, 
make payments uh, every month. And if they lost the payment, missed the payment, or were late in the payment, they could be evicted with no equity gained, unlike the white families uh, in the suburbs. Uh, this impoverished black communities, this contract buying system, impoverished black communities because in order to ensure that they were never late for a payment, and these were lower income families, uh, but working class, working families, uh, so frequently had to subdivide their homes in order to make these uh, exorbitant payments. Uh, sometimes they had to um, take in uh, borders in order to uh, uh, make these exorbitant uh, payments. And the result was that the neighborhood became overcrowded. Uh, city services didn't improve in order to uh, account for that overcrowding. And the neighborhoods became uh, the kind of deteriorated urban neighborhoods that we associate with low-income Black neighborhoods today, Black families today. But this was all of the responsibility of the federal government and the banks uh, working in collaboration with the federal government, real estate agents working in collaboration with the federal government to prevent African-Americans from, even in urban Black neighborhoods, from uh, purchasing homes on the same basis that whites could do so. Freddie Mac just released this study about how um, homes owned by Blacks are appraised for less than homes owned by whites, with appraisers being almost 90% white men. Um, can you please touch on another recent example about how racism is very much a part of our, um, of our present in housing? Well, um, let me give you an example of uh, when um, African-Americans or whites apply for a mortgage, the uh, bank that's uh, evaluating their um, qualifications, and your listeners all know about this, they, they try to evaluate whether the, the applicant is likely to be able to maintain those mortgage payments. And so they investigate their creditworthiness. Uh, they use a credit scoring system, uh, typically a FICO scores. Well, those scores are racially discriminatory because they include the kinds of uh, credit that white families have, but don't include the kinds of credit that black families have. I'm talking about on average. It's not a racially explicit program. So, for example, uh, they, uh, um, if you uh, have a previous home, have a previous home, and uh, uh, have made your mortgage payments on that previous home on time, Those that timely mortgage payment behavior improves your credit score when you apply for a new home. If you haven't been a previous homeowner, if you're a first-time home, home buyer, you don't have that kind of uh, record, and rental payments are not included in uh, your um, the credit valuation. Now, recently, and this is very interesting, recently, Fannie Mae said they would establish a system whereby applicants for uh, uh, homes uh, for mortgages could use their rent rental payments, their, their timely rental payments as evidence of their credit worthiness. It's a very complicated process to do this. It's not automatic like the, um, uh, uh, the use of um, mortgage payments, which gets routinely reported to the uh, to the uh, credit scoring agencies. And since African-Americans own homes at a lower rate than whites, they are more likely to have rental records uh, as the best evidence of their ability to, to make mortgage payments than whites are. And so this is an ongoing discriminatory program. The interesting thing is when Fannie, Fannie Mae uh, announced this new policy, 
it said that uh, in the past three years, if uh, families have been able to use rental payments uh, as evidence of their credit worthiness, 17% of all uh, families who were rejected for mortgages would have been eligible for mortgages had rental payments been used. Now, this is an example of how we're not making um, significant efforts to redress segregation. If Fannie Mae knows that 17% of those uh, rejected mortgage applicants would have been um, accepted, except for this discriminatory system of credit scoring, why doesn't it identify those 17% of the families and make some recompense to them? Mm-hmm. Make some um, a compensation to them for the fact that they were discriminatorily denied the opportunity to own homes. They're disproportionately African-Americans. So I said African-Americans are more likely than whites to have rental payments as evidence of their credit worthiness uh, rather than previous mortgage payments. This is an example not only of a discriminatory system, but of our failure to remedy where we can the effects of that discrimination. There is uh, recently Marsha Marcia Fudge, the head of HUD, she pledged 3 million new black homeowners by 2030, calling it three by 30. Is this progress and are there any signs of progress? Is it substantial progress? I don't take seriously the promises that the uh, public officials make. Uh, As you know, from the difficulties that uh, we're having, uh, getting any legislation passed in Congress now, Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not a pledge of Mar- of Marsha Fudge. That's a hope that uh, somehow Congress is going to approve such a program, and there's no likelihood that it will. Mm-hmm. Do you see any signs of progress anywhere? Um, yes, I, I see a lot of signs of progress. Uh, as you know, um, we're having a more accurate and passionate discussion about uh, the legacies of slavery and Jim Crow than we ever have had before in American, in American history. Any time in American history, we've never had such a, a discussion. As this uh, your podcast indicates, mm-hmm. um, you know, we had 20 million people participate in Black Lives Matter demonstrations a, a year ago, a year and a half ago. Unheard of at any time in our previous history. And most of those 20 million were whites. Even more unheard of at any time in our previous history. That indicates that we have the potential for making progress. Whether that awareness will translate into direct action, I don't know. We had a civil rights movement in this country in the 1960s that didn't Mm -hmm. wait for the government to pass legislation. It took direct action to insist on local change as well as um, uh, creating the political environment where legislation uh, was possible. So if that awareness uh, translates into real organization, into a new civil rights movement, then I think we do have a chance like we've never had before to make some progress in this area. But simply a one-off demonstrations are not going to do it. Right. It's awareness of African-Americans also being uh, aware of their own history. I think it's shocking for some of them to find out how they've been discriminated against. Um, But hugely, of course, whites no longer ignoring just the abundance of examples of um, how the system has been against African-Americans. So I'm so happy that we have a little bit of time left um, to talk about zoning, because I think it's such a critical issue, how it's affected African-Americans, 
versus um, white neighborhoods, what are traditionally white neighborhoods. Can you speak a little bit to how um, I think about St. Louis, where zoning um, for industry was permitted in what was considered African-American neighborhoods? If you can just speak to that in um, sort of a national, how it's a a national uh, trend and issue that's happened in the past. Well, there are really two aspects. There are really two aspects to this. One, as you mentioned, is in uh, throughout the 20th century, neighborhoods where African Americans lived were typically zoned to permit non-residential uses, industrial uses, sometimes even polluting, uh, polluting uh, uses. Uh, fr- frequently, and there are many examples of this, cities uh, located toxic waste dumps in uh, neighborhoods where African-Americans lived, something they would never do in neighborhoods uh, where whites lived. White neighborhoods, particularly in the suburbs now, are zoned exclusively for residential use. Many neighborhoods are are zoned even for only single-family use, in some cases on large lot sizes. Uh, There is a movement now in this country, yes, before about progress. There's much more attention being done uh, paid to this. Uh, Minneapolis uh, prohibited single-family zoning throughout the city. It's a very tiny step forward. First of all, the, the real problem is in the suburbs, not in the city. Uh, and secondly, uh, without uh, giving African-Americans preference for any um, new uh, duplexes or triplexes that get built, um, the, the new units that will be created by this single family zoning will likely be gobbled up by uh, millennials who uh, you know, can't afford to live in the neighborhoods where they grew up because of this escalation in prices that I referred to before. Mm-hmm. Uh, California just uh, statewide prohibited single-family zoning and permitted um, any lot presently um, uh, zoned for single families to be subdivided in two to create uh, two units. Uh, so uh, there's progress in this, uh, in this direction, but zoning for reform alone will not have a, a racial impact. Because as I said, we have a housing crisis now, not just for African-Americans, but for white working class and middle class families as well. And they are going to be in a position to outbid African-Americans for the additional homes that are created by zoning reform alone. So in addition to zoning reform, we need an affirmative action program on housing that takes explicit account of the exclusion of African-Americans in an unconstitutional fashion from these neighborhoods and enables them to access the additional homes that are being created, or that will be created, hopefully. Yes. So there's one thing that you hope that your reader, uh, anyone reading Color of Law walks away with. Um, What's the most important thing to you when you started writing this and and while you were doing your research? Well, it relates to what I said a minute ago. The most important thing to walk away from the color of law with is the demolition of the myth that we have something called de facto segregation. It's something that just happened by accident. It happened because of private bigotry of white homeowners not willing to sell homes or landlords not willing to rent homes in white neighborhoods, or maybe private businesses like banks and realtors and developers practicing discrimination, or maybe an increasingly common myth is that uh, 
segregation just happened because people like to live with each other, the same race, and we feel more comfortable that way. Or maybe it's all because of economic differences. Uh, what people, I hope, will walk away from the color of woe is an understanding that that uh, rationalization for not doing anything about it, and it was all private and therefore not a constitutional violation, that de facto segregation is nonsense. What we have is a system of unconstitutional segregation imposed by the federal government in every metropolitan area of the country. And, and this is the big takeaway, if it's a civil rights violation to have segregated neighborhoods, then every one of us as American citizens has an obligation to do something about it, an obligation to support and perhaps take action in part of the new civil rights movement to um, press for uh, policies that are affirmative in nature to uh, redress the segregation, to uh, end the, the segregation that, as I said at the very beginning, is underlies the most serious social and political problems that we face in this country. Thank you very much, Mr. Rothstein, for being here. I very much appreciate it. And we hope that people listening will pick up your book, Color of Law. Thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate this. 